G'day Inverse community, I'm Jared McKenna and I can't tell you how excited I am about my co-host Dr. Drew Hart's new book, Who Will Be a Witness? Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love and Deliverance. To quote that towering 20th century figure of God's justice, love and deliverance, Abraham Joshua Heschel, there are no final proofs for the existence of God. There are only witnesses. For Heschel, much like the Hebrew prophets and that nonviolent Messiah of justice named Jesus, faith is not merely to be believed, faith is to be embodied. Drew Hart is fast becoming a go-to voice for articulating a practical and prophetic embodied faith in our time. In these additional episodes, alongside our regular interviews, I think you'll hear why. Over the next coming weeks, we will interview friends and co-workers in what John Lewis called Good Trouble to discuss chapter by chapter Doc Drew's new book. These conversations were recorded in community with friends from around the world as part of Inverse's ongoing work to create formation experiences that deepen our witness to God's justice, love and deliverance. So grace and peace to you. Enjoy this conversation on this chapter in Drew's new book. It is my pleasure to invite my friend, Dominique Gilliard. Uh, he is the Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation of the Love, Mercy, Do Justice Initiative of the Evangelical Covenant Church. And he's also the author of Rethinking Incarceration, um, an excellent book, Advocating for Justice That Restores. And in this book actually won the 2018 Book of the Year Award for InterVarsity Press. Gilliard also serves on the board of directors for the Christian Community Development Association and Evangelicals for Justice. In 2015, he was selected as one of the ECC's 40 Under 40 Leaders to Watch, and the Huffington Post named him one of the Black Christian leaders changing the world. It is my great pleasure to invite my brother, Dominic Gilliard, into conversation. How are you doing? Hey, man. I'm, I'm feeling blessed, feeling energized by this chapter. Awesome, brother. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Um, before we um, jump in into the book content, um, I wanted to, number one, uh, um, folks may not be as familiar with the Evangelical Covenant Church. Um, I know initially when people hear evangelical, um, they don't imagine that there could be a position of director of racial righteousness, right? Um, now, I know a little bit about the denomination, but you want to say a little bit about, um, I mean, just this kind of unique evangelical denomination that creates enough space where you can have a position like director of racial righteousness as, as, as a role that you um, take within that denomination. Yeah, yeah. Um, we are not the traditional evangelical in that regard. Um, we still got work to do. Um, let me be clear about that. But um, we are the uh, first European origin denomination to cross the 20 percentile marker in regards to ethnic participation denominationally. And we're actually knocking on the door 30 percent uh, non-white uh, participation within our denomination. Uh, we've ordained women to all levels of ministry for the last 42 years, so well above the head of the curve in that regard. Um, and uh, we, within our denominational structure, the multi-ethnic mosaic is the second ring of our mission and vision of what 
we believe it means to live into the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And so um, really trying to have real conversations. Uh, you were able to come on one of our Sankofa journeys, uh, which right. is a racial justice pilgrimage that replicates the ethos of the 1960 Freedom Rides. Uh, we've been doing this for 21 years now. So again, uh, kind of really early to the table in regards to evangelicalism, in regards to really trying to authentically grapple with and wrestle with these issues and I've been in my role for three and a half years now um, and so there's a lot of the other denominations main lines even calling reaching out and saying hey what's the structure of your job because we'd like to implement something like this denominationally uh, to give our people a, mission, a vision and some biblical discipleship around what does it mean to really understand uh, racial righteousness as a biblical call and reconciliation as a part of the heartbeat of what it means to follow uh, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So, Awesome. Awesome. Thanks. Uh, so I'm curious, I mean, uh, thinking about this chapter, Liberating Barabbas, um, I'm, I'm curious about how you have heard Barabbas frames in faith communities like prior, like how have you heard Barabbas? I'm curious your, your responses as you think about your own um, ways that you've heard him talked about and discussed in faith communities. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit in our small groups. Um, I would have had to been one of those who honestly have only really heard Barabbas articulated as kind of the foil uh, for Jesus' sin sinlessness. And so um, some of the other kind of more grotesque um, articulations, I think visually, uh, I can recognize them when I see images of the Barabbas uh, being darkened, being kind of cockeyed and some of the things you described, but that wasn't really the way that I think I was taught about Barabbas um, yeah. orally, but I think I could definitely decode it within the images that were uh, presented around Barabbas. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. And I'd even say, honestly, um, within my not paying much attention to Barabbas, the whole Jesus Barabbas connection was actually new to me and um, really revolutionary in in its scope and meaning. Um, I think that was the part we we can circle back, but that was the part to really lay bare kind of the heart of the chapter for me in regards to if we really understand the duality of Jesus and Barabbas for all the way up until the full manifestation of the vision of freedom, um, then it really lays bare before us a question of how do we truly define freedom and how do we believe that tr freedom is actually manifested? Um, is it really through uh, a nonviolent, um, a militant nonviolent savior, um, or is it through the, the tools of empire. And so um, I, I, I really, really love that piece of it. And we can circle back, but that was, that was a new, that was probably the crescendo in regards to uh, the connection that I hadn't seen in Barabbas and Jesus and what it means to, why it's so vital that we do liberate Barabbas. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest, like this was, I remember um, you could say this chapter was, um, a long ways in the works, like way back when I first, I preached a sermon after I graduated college at the church, I was a youth pastor and which had like the kernels of this. And ever since then, I just been, it just been kind of unfolding and unraveling and kind of putting together. And so this, 
this chapter was inevitably going to show up somewhere. Um, in fact, I remember um, when Jared and I were first talking about um, even doing the podcast together, and I don't remember how it came up, but he had mentioned Barabbas, and I was like, "Wait a minute, that's in my book." So, uh, but uh, so it's just, but I do think it, it is it is a pretty paradigmatic kind of moment when you realize the role that Barabbas has in the gospel story, right? Um, and the way that the implications that it has not only for Barabbas, but then also for Jesus and, and what it, what that says about who Jesus is, I think is pretty significant as well. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that is interesting for me, like I know that you work with incarcerated people at some of what you do in your work, um, people who are often demonized, stigmatized, kind of put through different lenses. Um, so in this case with Brabus, who is, he's incarcerated, right? He's captured as a political insurrection. Why, why does it matter how we talk about uh, people who are incarcerated? Why does it matter the language that we use, the categories that we use, and the, whether we stigmatize people in that kind of way or not? Yeah, I think it, it profoundly matters because what we slowly but surely have been socialized to do is to dehumanize uh, our brothers and sisters who are behind bars, um, to create these categorically different realities of us and them, uh, where what's okay to do to them would never be permissible to do to us. And we force our sisters and brothers and children uh, to... Uh, don the scarlet letter of incarceration for the rest of their life um, in a way where we say that people are supposed to serve time uh, to be reformed and then come back into our communities. But we come, we when they come back, they face over 44,000 legal consequences that put restrictions on their life for the rest of their life. Uh, we strip them if they have felony convictions from the ability to be able to get education that allow them to truly uh, turn the next page in life and we bar them from governmental assistance and voting rights and all these things that would really allow them to not only just return to our communities but to return to our communities as leaders who can help our communities be safer places. Uh, we don't have that vision for incarcerated people. Um, and Brian Stevenson said it this way. He said, you know, we need more believers who believe that Saul's can truly become Paul's. And when I, when I think about the witness of the church, we are supposed to be those people who have this um, unrelenting belief in redemption, um, this unrelenting belief that no person is forever defined by the worst thing that they've ever done. And that when we start to typecast folk who are behind bars without knowing their experience, without knowing the circumstances that gave rise to the offense they may, may have created, but also not knowing how many people behind bars are falsely incarcerated and shouldn't be there. And if they are there, a lot of times are only there because they're too poor to be able to afford their bail. Um, and when you are locked up and don't have a chance to work with your lawyer, uh, it has like a 90% impact on your likelihood of actually being able to be proven innocent if you actually are innocent. So all of these factors are at play. Um, but I think we are socialized to categorically believe that the law works the way that it should. Um, and I'm actually wearing a shirt today from my namesake, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, that says that a system that was never created for you 
will never work for us. And the reality is that the, yeah. the criminal justice system wasn't created to work for black, brown, indigenous, BIPOC folk in this country. And so yeah. it, it works the way that it was created to function. And until we can really reckon with that truth, um, then we're going to continue to have these circular conversations and push incremental changes, believing that it's going to lead to liberation and a deconstruction of an anti-gospel criminal justice system that defaces the image of God on our brothers and sisters on a daily basis and exploits them for their labor. So, Amen. Amen, brother. Amen. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think for me, when it hit, you know, my and I, a lot of people know because of my first book, Trouble I've Seen, I talk about my older brother getting locked up. For those who've read it, um, that that's the first time it really hit me in a different kind of way when it was like my own family. And then my my younger brother, who I don't talk about in the book, but nine years younger than me, also gets incarcerated for minor drug offense, right? Just the war on drugs, and and just the um, yeah, I think that. And then how quickly people stigmatize, right? And how hard it is for them to get a job and participate in society afterwards. Um, and, and when you dehumanize somebody, it's so easy to then oppress them, right? Um, it kind of justifies that kind of action and behavior. And I think that, I, I just think about Barabbas then, the, like what, why have we read these texts so wrong, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, um, and it's almost like intentionally dehumanizing Barabbas in such a way that we will not then empathize with those who are oppressed in our own society. We can justify and kind of dismiss um, because we can't see, we, we can't see Barabbas's full humanity. We can't see the humanity of others, our brothers and sisters in our society as well. Yeah. Yeah. Not only can we, but we do. Um, right. And, you know, I think it's really important for us to reckon with the fact that we have been taught and discipled, dare I say, to to separate the social condition conditions that give rise to criminality from uh, criminal sanctions themselves. And um, one of the things I wrestle with with the book, I have uh, Christopher Marshall uh, is the number one theologian for my two cents around um, biblical restorative justice, he talks about what happens when the church does that, when the church disconnects uh, the criminal conditions that give rise to crime um, from institutional neglect and the actual manifestation of crime itself. And when we do that, uh, we have a system like what we have right now in our nation, uh, where disproportionately people behind bars are people who are suffering from mental impairments, people who are impoverished, people who are addicted, have some kind of substance abuse addiction, people who have experienced trauma, people who have been sexually violated. We have the least of these who are caught up in the system. And again, it's become a multi-billion dollar industry uh, yeah. where people are getting filthy rich off the incarceration of our sisters and brothers. And, you know, scripture tells us, you know, for the love of money is the root of all evil mm. and all kinds of evil and our criminal justice system is the manifestation of the love of money and so until we can really have those real raw conversations again we're going to keep tinkering when we actually need to be about the work of paul and silas which is to bring a corrupt criminal justice system to its knees and actually topple that's right amen amen yeah all right so switching gears just a little bit but yeah. i think yeah. related um thinking about this chapter and, you know, like, how do you think we should respond to folks who are 
struggling against injustice and oppression in ways that maybe don't necessarily seem to align with the ways that we see Jesus living that out? Like, what, what does that mean? I think that folks sometimes struggle, certainly in the church, in terms of what is our place in these diverse movements and diverse strategies for justice yeah. and, and liberation? Yeah, well, the church's place far too often is what you critique and towards the conclusion where we're standing on the sidelines critiquing those who are actually in the struggle. And the reality is, you know, I think we need to we need to really reread Romans 12, uh, 1 and 2, um, where it tells us that our bodies are supposed to be offered as a living sacrifice to God. There are very few things that actually cause us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, like protesting, like actually literally putting our lives on the line, knowing that we could be killed for the struggle but the struggle is not our own struggle. It's a gospel struggle. It's a kingdom struggle. And we will be part of the martyrs who've gone before us, part of the great how witnesses who've actually said that the gospel is actually still good news when it cost me something, when it could even cost me my life. And that's the kind of revo revolutionary kind of thrust that the spirit inspires within the body when we're willing to actually submit ourselves to the to the ways of Jesus, uh, like you're calling us to in this book. So what I think, um, what I what I tried to talk about um, when kind of speaking to what you say, I think the church is called to be a peculiar people who takes a Philippians 2 type approach when we don't understand why people are struggling in the manner that they do. Uh, we are supposed to seek with curiosity to ask what is giving rise to this lament, to this resistance, to, to this behavior that seems out of sorts to me. Um, and through that posture of humility and listening and learning and actually putting the interest in the needs of others before ourselves, then that's what really draws us into solidarity. Uh, we, we take a new posture towards those who have seemed estranged from us before when we actually give them the honor of listening to why they feel that this type of struggle is the only option that they have. Um, you know, it goes back to what Howard Thurman talks about with those, with the, their walls against, backs against the wall. Um, oftentimes, I think we just see folk with the backs against the wall and we say, well, if you didn't do X, Y, and Z, your back wouldn't have been against the wall. You would have been in a better circumstance so that you would have had other options. That's not a gospel response. Um, that's not what we see Jesus do. That's not what um, we're called to do throughout scripture over and over again. And so for me, I think we need to start when we see brothers and sisters responding in a way that we would want to label as anti-Christ. I think the first thing we should be doing is asking what is giving rise to this lament, because this is actually an indictment on the system, on society, saying that things are not the way that God intended them to be. This is not the way that we were supposed to live amongst each other. So in resistance to that, and re in resistance to the fact that you, through your apathy, silence, and complicity, have left me alone to resist this dehumanizing violence alone, then you don't have the right to critique how I ultimately choose to resist it until you're willing right. to actually come in solidarity with me and resist it alongside of me. And so I think that's, we have to start to speak those harsh truths in the church to awaken the body to who we're called to be. Um, and we have a 
we have a distinctive posture in this conversation and all too often we haven't assumed that posture and we've left brothers and sisters out there alone trying to work this all out by themselves. Um, I will say uh, before you turn the corner, I think this chapter is probably the second, like I, I've been in this season in the midst of the, the global uprisings, Willie Jennings conversation about righteous anger. Oh yes, 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 that's good. Life. If yeah, you have not yeah. listened to that, go check that out after this. Um, yeah. It will give you life. I want to yeah. say that this is like right up there with Willie's articulation about the struggle and the tension and living in the tension and choosing the way of Jesus in the midst of the tension. But the reality is, as somebody who actively goes out and protests myself, we can't critique folk who go out and protest in the midst of the resistance and the violence that's being enacted on them as peaceful protesters, critique them until we're willing to go out there with them and actually get in the muck and the mire. And in the midst of those, those moments where a person can go the way of violence or the way of peace, um, if we're not modeling it and we're not actually out there discipling on the ground in the midst of the struggle, we don't have, uh, we don't have the authority to critique what's happening. Yep. No authority, no credibility, right? Yep. Um, no credibility at all. Um, yeah, I think, I, I think that's right. And I, I won't lie. Like there's portions of this, chapter where I'm critiquing some folks in my own tradition. And that's when I have my foot in the Anabaptist world. There's some folks, right? Let's be honest. We I'm all sure do you, it, brother. Yeah. <laughs> but but, but I, had, I had certain folks in my mind, yep. you know, yep. who, who can um, kind of be on the high horse critiquing other people's ways of engaging and responding to violence and, and oppression and injustice. Um, but they're doing it from comfort and they're not involved in justice work at all, right? Um, and it really frustrates me when I see it. So there's some frustration that gets poured out in this chapter that maybe some people won't know unless you are a part of some of these conversations where people want to go third way. And their definition of third way is it's a, dis, it's a misunderstanding of third way, but it's a third way that is halfway and it's safe, right? Yeah. Um, rather than a nonviolent revolutionary way. And yeah. I think that, um, that it's unfortunate that that has also gained a lot of traction um, and it's not really about peacemaking then. It's just about not engaging in violence. And let's just um, real quick talk about how peacemaking has been co-opted. Because right. the reality is that when you live in a violent reality, to wage peace in that reality is violent itself. It's yeah. not violence in the way of the empire, but it's right. violent because you're yeah. actually inserting yourself in the midst right. of violence and cultivating space for peace where death, destruction, and violence have all too often reigned. And so we, yeah. we need a new imagination of what even That's peacemaking right. entails. That's right. We just had this conversation last week. Um, excellent. Yes, we just had this conversation last week. Um, let me think. What else do we want to get into before we close up? Um, do, well, do you have I got, I got something I wanted yeah, 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 yeah. to... You go, you go, you go. One of the things that I thought was really... And, you know, it, it wasn't even your writing. It was actually you just quoting scripture, but it stood out to me in a different way this time. Uh, when you quoted Matthew 27, and it talks about, you know, Jesus is kind of, you know, leading to the cross and them choosing Barabbas. It really stood out to me. It said, now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas. And I don't think we have really reckoned with the ways historically and presently 
clergy have riled up the crowd, enticing the people of God to actually advocate for something that's anti-gospel. Mm, and I, I think wow. we got to reckon with that in this moment, mm. in this moment where we got preachers oh. in this country talking about we need to get ready mm. for another civil war and to arm right. ourselves and to get ready right. for what's about to happen. Like, we right. have to really reckon with the fact that the violence that is so persistent in our nation would be impossible if it was not for the theological legitimization of yeah. the church historically and presently and the same thing would be true for elected officials as well and so i think we need to really start to reckon with what does it mean to hold authority figures accountable to uh, the faith that they proclaim because all too often it's just this nonsensical faith that you get into next chapter um <laughs> where you, <laughs> where it's just this co-opted articulation of i'm with jesus but everything that you embody is imperial in nature and so i think we re we really gotta so i i that that passage that part of the passage just stuck out to me because i think we're reliving this because uh there is no institutional accountability right now for anybody who proclaims faith in Christ. Anybody can just proclaim it. And just because they make that proclamation, then we give them all of these passes for different things that they do. And we might highlight the one or two things that they might do that align with Jesus when they're doing a hundred other things that don't align. And I think we need to understand how that ultimately distorts our collective witness and not just that individual's witness in the world. Yeah, that's so good, brother. That's so good. That's so good. I think there's no question. I mean, I was, so I was in a conversation earlier today and just, I was making the point around, I mean, this was in, in terms of slavery, but just the theologizing that went on to, to create that kind of systemic violence, the, the weaponizing of the Bible to create that kind of system of violence. And so, but in all kinds of different ways, we see that, and there really is, no accountability. And I mean, I think, and it, it gets even more complicated when um, like every church and every leader is kind of a lone ranger, right? Just doing their own thing. Um, and so they're not in community and not accountable to others, right? In any kind of meaningful way. And sometimes there are folks in community where the whole entire denominations have gone off rail and that's a whole nother problem. But um but I, but I do think that those are real issues that I think we have to kind of grapple with and figure out, like, how do we move forward as the church um, and, and not in a way that it's not necessarily silencing people, right? That's not the answer. Um, but how do we engage in meaningful, substantive conversation and dialogue where um, critical conversation accountability can actually happen in that space? <sighs> All right. So and then much. lastly, I'll just say yeah. I, I really yeah. appreciated how you you just make us reckon with the reality of our sister was talking about solidarity earlier. I do I do want to say I think that we have to be really careful to make sure that we don't allow this truncated articulation of solidarity to yeah. to to basically superimpose itself on the true definition. Um, so the truest definition of solidarity is the incarnation. It's Jesus choosing to leave the shalom of heaven and enter into the brokenness of the world, knowing what he was going to endure in the midst of our broken reality. Like that's real solidarity from within, with us, with the people, for the people, by the people. Like that kind of solidarity is not what we see in the midst of protests and different stuff going on today. Like, so we have to, those are categorically different. But I think um, what I really appreciate about what you did in this text was 
talking about how both Jesus and uh, Barabbas really come out of the struggle, come out of the oppression, come out of uh, a vision for imperial resistance. But given Barabbas's credibility, it was logical that the folk chose him over Jesus. Like, because when, when Jesus had the chance to actually show if he was down or not, Jesus starts talking about this peaceable kingdom stuff. And like, that's not the way of my, <laughs> you know, that's not what I'm here to do. Where Bradvis was actually in the right. struggle. He was willing to shed blood right. for the cause. Like he was a real right. zealot. And so right. I could, it, it's logical for folk who are coming out of that circumstance who don't subscribe to the same logic that we have around the, the peaceable nature of the kingdom today to say, yeah, Jesus, you good, but Barabbas is the one who's really going to be willing to go all the way for us, for the revolution, uh, for our freedom. And so I really appreciated that nuance and the way in which you, you make sense of what could feel like a pretty nonsensical choice on behalf of folk who are working against their interests. And, you know, we live in a reality right now where a lot of people are critiqued for voting against their own self-interest or, uh, you know, engaging in a way that's against their own self-interest. So you can actually read this story like that, too, historically. And I think the way that the tension that you raise helps us not do that, because that actually does the text a disservice. Yeah, and I, I hope that, I mean, my tension when I was writing this chapter was how do I both orient people around the peacemaking way of Jesus, but not in a way that dishonors my brothers and sisters that have been struggling in, in a whole range of ways, right? Um, and, and to think like, even when I mentioned like Barabbas is not, um, is not Nat Turner, for example, like I have nothing but respect for Nat Turner. You won't hear me like talking down on Nat Turner because I don't know what I'm going to do if I'm in his book, right? I mean, so there's this kind of deep respect I have for that, even as I believe Jesus is inviting us to a new imagination, a creative, strategic, nonviolent resistance in the midst of society. Um, I get why people, it, it makes a lot of sense. I, I, quick instincts can lead me to want to say, yeah, sometimes Brabus's way is necessary. Like, I get that. It makes sense to me. There's been times where I've wanted to do things and I've had to get the Jesus in me to hold me back from, from how I'm feeling in particular moments, right? And I think that um, hopefully we can feel that tension. Um, I, I love folks who talk about how we don't really quite get, you know, the nonviolent resistance of Jesus until we've kind of been urged to risk the Barabbas way. Like, you don't really get Jesus quite yet until you've wanted to kind of burn that building down, right? And I think that there's something meaningful about that, um, that then it's at precisely at that moment that Jesus invites us into a new imagination um, for what is possible. And hopefully in later chapters, people will see that it is also an effective way, um, a strategic way to go about this work as well. But thank you, brother. Thank you for joining me in conversation. Always a pleasure. Yes, for sure. Glad to be with you, brother. If you want to be part of this growing global community, you can find more details on our Inverse Patreon page. We are seeking to practice a Jubilee economics to make these experiences accessible to everyone wherever you're found, be it in remote communities in the Kimberley or a township in Cape Town or downtown Berlin or on the south side of Chicago or the suburbs of Sydney. We want to make this accessible for you, so let's work to do that together.
Well, I see.